Hi. Hello. I'm Randy. And I'm Claire. And you're listening to Killer Vibes, a true crime podcast. So this is part two of the uh, serial killer Ted Bundy story. Um, And we left off talking about how he re-enrolled into the University of Washington and um, declared a... uh, Declined. He declared a psychology major. So... Bundy would meet his longtime girlfriend, Elizabeth Klepfer, at a bar called the Sandpiper Tavern in Seattle on September 26, 1969. And she would become a huge part of Bundy's life um, and also would become a huge part in his downfall. Um, she would end up being one of the people to call the police. and um, <laughs> I love that she them, does that. I know. And tell them, she did it twice. Um, so she would end up telling them that the man they were looking for might be her boyfriend. Girl power. Um, oh my gosh. And she would help them to prosecute Bundy in Utah. So she's like a huge deal to this. She's a badass. She's a total badass. You have to be so cool to do that. I know. And I really, really, really want a copy of her book called um, The Phantom Prince. It is $500, (laughs) a copy for one of them, um, on Amazon. And I do not have $500 to spend on a, a book. So unfortunately, I don't have a copy. But the movie is based off of her life. So it's told from her perspective. Um, so that book is utilized quite heavily. And apparently Klepfer was like on the set for part of it. Like the like she actually was there. Yeah. Is okay, so is this where the title comes from? No. Okay, okay. That so there Claire is, told me earlier that there's a cool story behind yes, the name where of the, the movie. title comes from. Yes, because the first time I saw it, I was like, why did they call it this stupid thing? But it actually It's does, hard to remember. <laughs> it is. Um, so it actually does have a little bit of a relationship to Bundy's final trial. So we'll talk about that later, but um, it is like the name has a purpose. Yes, Randy. Is it in? Okay, I'm just going to keep guessing because it's fine. Keep guessing. Is it in the prosecution's closing statement? No, it's not. Okay. (laughs) But good guess. That's close. So I wrongly stated in the Zodiac episode, and I said a few things wrong about this case in the Zodiac episode. Yeah, well, we say Um, wrong things all the time. time. Please Um, don't dislike us for it. Yeah. Uh, But this was before I had read the book. And so I stated that Ted was the biological father of Elizabeth's daughter, Tina. But that's not right. And it kind of insinuates in the trailer that they are related, but they're not. I feel like I knew that and I didn't. Yeah. But she, I mean, it's essentially his daughter. Pretty much. So he raises her for a very large part of her life. Mm -hmm. Like she was, he was involved with Elizabeth for like going on nine years, um, which is a long time, especially for a child who's young and like. Those are the pivotal years of her life. So you weren't that wrong. No, I wasn't super wrong, but he is not biologically related Mm -hmm. to Tina. And Elizabeth had been married previously and had gotten a divorce because she learned that her ex-husband was actually a felon. So she just has great, like, taste in men. (laughs) Awesome. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. You poor woman. (laughs) So sorry about that. But Tina is not related to Ted Bundy in any way. But they do have a father-daughter relationship. So although Klepfer was a central figure in a central figure in Bundy's life, he would never be faithful to her in any capacity. And all of that would like come to light when he was being um arrested in Utah and people were being questioned about him. Um, but she was very much in love with him and probably would have married him if he didn't turn out to be a serial killer. <laughs> um, so, um, so, darn they, it. <laughs> I know, right? But their relationship was kind of in this weird open relationship sort of thing. So yeah. it was like 
they both kind of knew what was going on, but they didn't actually like talk about it very much. And Elizabeth was a very jealous person. I've seen that in a couple different places. But I mean, like, how could you not be if you know that your boyfriend, who you are very devoted to and who your daughter is heavily involved with, you know that he's being unfaithful to you? I would be mad, too. So everybody keeps calling her this jealous woman. And I'm like, well, yeah. It's like we're all riddled with jealousy, but how could you not be in that situation? So stop saying that she's a jealous woman. I think it's mean and it doesn't really talk about the truth. So anyway, so um, (laughs) Bundy, although he was unfaithful, would say during one of his tapes that, and I quote, I loved her so much it was destabilizing. So he did have a very deep um, appreciation for her, but. Elizabeth was also a very wealthy woman. Like, she came from a prominent family in Utah. They were a Mormon family. They were also involved in politics in Utah. She and her father would actually help Ted get through law school. And her father would also be instrumental in his acceptance into the University of Utah's law school as well. So... I don't know. Maybe he really did Working love an her. angle, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Um, but again, he would be very honest in a lot of his confession mm-hmm. tapes. and We'll give him that. Yeah. So I, I honestly- <laughs> One redeeming quality. Right. I do think that he had a very deep appreciation for Elizabeth and for her daughter. And he would be very upset when Elizabeth would eventually leave his life. And he was also, he was even more upset when Elizabeth wouldn't let him see her daughter anymore. So, you know, and he would say this statement was really weird. He was like um, he would tell Anne Rule while they were getting coffee after he was awaiting trial in Utah. Well, he had flew back to Seattle for a brief amount of time because he posted bail and then came back to Utah and they got coffee in Seattle. And he would tell Anne, um, I don't understand why Elizabeth won't let me see her daughter. It's not like I'm going to attack her or anything. Well, your track record you, shows otherwise. Yeah, like, that's debatable. Um, Wait, maybe you should explain the Anne Rule's connection to Ted. Oh, yeah. So, um, I will, I don't know if you were going to do that later. Yeah, I am going to oh, do okay. that a little bit later. But Anne Rule knew Ted Bundy very, very well. Like, they were, like, and she, in her book, a lot of her letters to Ted while he was in prison happen. And they are very good friends. So, a lot of people, I don't think, understand how deep that relationship Mm -hmm. ran it wasn't ever sexual it wasn't ever any romantic but it was pretty intense and um Bundy leaned on her quite heavily throughout the entire trial process um from 1976 to 78 I like the title of her book oh yeah the stranger beside me how clever is that I know that's a great yeah I feel like it'd be so hard to come up with a title for a book Right. So when there's a good one I'm like oh my god that's clever the Golden State Killer book I Uh just I'll be gone in the dark. Mm-hmm. That's so good. That's I so know, good. right? And like true crime books have good titles. They really do. Like The Devil in the Helter White City, Skelter. In Cold Blood. Like yeah. that's just good stuff. Mm-hmm. Some juicy. Though That's the sign of a good author for me. A good is title. If you can come up with a really solid title for yeah. your book. You shouldn't judge a book by its cover, if you will, but you kind of should. Killers of the Flower Moon. I yes. don't like that book, but no. I like that title. But the title is good. So... Anyway, um, so he would be very heavily involved in both Elizabeth and Tina's life. She was, like, adored by his parents, um, Louise and Johnny. And Bundy was also really loved by Elizabeth's parents. Obviously, they would help him get into law school, even though he had a subpar LSAT. I I just, like, really hope. What is it? I don't know. That's the thing. I was like, oh, God. I got a subpar LSAT score. (laughs) Me too. What is it? What's his score? Did he get the same score as us? Um, (laughs) 
So it was kind of the calm before the storm, and Bundy was actually even commended by the police department because he rescued a three-year-old girl from drowning that year as well. So he was like an upstanding citizen. It was really odd, very odd. So this was also when we know that Bundy was still talking to Diane without Elizabeth's knowledge. And he really was living his best life. And um, he was uh, getting good grades at school. He was really uh, um, adored by his professors. And Diane was kind of like, okay. So Diane wasn't really like starting these conversations ever. Bundy was obsessed with her. So he kept on calling Mm -hmm. her and they would chat. But when he started to kind of become more active in his community and started to, like, make something of himself, Dan was really supportive of this. And she was his friend for quite a long time. And eventually something would blossom. And we'll talk about that, too. Um, I always feel like I say that. I'm like, we'll get to that later. <laughs> but I, just a little tidbit Here's a little for the foreshadowing. <laughs> Ooh. So you mentioned how Bundy met Anne Rule. So in 1971, Bundy worked at the Seattle Crisis Clinic, manning the suicide hotline for work study at the University of Washington. And Rule worked there as a volunteer, and they would become really good friends. It was just by, like, sheer happenstance that their schedules overlapped each other. And she only worked there for, like, a three-hour period, and he would do, like, an overnight situation. So... She had no idea who he was or who he would become. But the interesting thing is that Anne Rule was already an active investigative reporter and had a huge relationship with the police department in Tacoma and in King County. So she was like, it's just so odd that the two of them would meet and become really, really good friends. Um, And he he would divulge so much of his life to her and um, would call her in many different instances right after he had committed some of his most heinous murders. Sometimes he would just like breathe on the phone. He called her after he had escaped in um, Aspen and when he had gotten to Florida. (laughs) So there was just she was really important to him. Some people see it as a manipulation because she was so heavily involved in investigative reporting and in the police departments in Washington. But he hadn't committed any crimes yeah, she yet, didn't supposedly. Know yet. Yeah, yeah and this, so this is 71. So the first reported crime that I would consider a viable crime that he possibly could have committed was in 73. So their relationship blossomed two years before that happened. And even then, it was a while until she realized who it was. So it's not like she was being malicious. No, nothing like that. He just obviously has some mom issues. Oh, yeah. So much. I think it was like a positive relationship. Because he didn't really have... That yeah, positive right. mom relationship before. So, mm-hmm. yes. wow, we both picked serial, serial killers with mom issues. They all have mom issues, don't they? Like, most of them. Well, I mean, you, yeah, you could make that <laughs> argument for sure. But, yeah, ours had very significant mom issues. <laughs> um, just weird outlying mom issues, yeah. for sure. So, yeah, and I just think it's really odd to think about Ted Bundy on the phone with suicide I People know, who it's are contemplating so weird. suicide. Um, and it also just like makes me a little uncomfortable to think about because of his cross-examination that would happen in the trials in Florida and how he would sort of ask very detailed descriptions of the crime scenes. So it was like he would go into such like ridiculous detail and ask about all of the horrible things that happened inside of the rooms inside of the Kyle Mega house. (laughs) And um, yeah. And so, and the judge just like let him do this, which is 
interesting. So Bundy like represents himself, but that cross-examination didn't have any purpose whatsoever to the actual prosecution or what was happening at all like it didn't have it like you didn't need to know the blood splatter or or what exactly did the nylon stockings look like like you didn't need to know that information it just wasn't pertinent it would just be so weird to have Bundy on the phone talking to a person who is contemplating suicide but and this is where this disassociative disorder would come into play Rule would say that he saved lives during his time mm-hmm. at the crisis hotline, and she, he was very empathetic, would stay on the phone with people well past when his shift ended. Like, she was so impressed with him, and literally, in her book, she said, we saved lives together. This would be a huge part of Bundy's life as well. And I think that, like, part of being a sociopath, which I think he is, mm-hmm. <laughs> is that you don't have emotions, so you have to fake all of it. And when you're faking all of it, it's probably easier to be to be a suicide hotline mm-hmm. caller or operator because you're not going to get like as worked up about it. You're right. just going to be like, really calm and collected mm-hmm. and have this like fake empathy. So right. I can see that. I can actually understand why he was so good at that. So exactly. And there are moments where Bundy would have very aggressive emotional moments, which is also why some people think that he's not a sociopath because he often in like a lot of the different tapes he would get very emotional and would cry and well they sociopaths fake that that's true but like (laughs) and I don't know how to determine whether or not he's faking it or not but just as as I was listening to it it's very convincing if he's faking it that's all I have to say and I don't know I mean I don't know anything about sociopaths but the bare minimum but Mm -hmm. like maybe I wonder if you can have like a little bit you know, like mm-hmm. be like a little bit of sociopath, like twenty percent. Maybe sociopath. he was high functioning, and then all of these situations sort of like led him to commit murder. Yeah, because anyway. there's tons of really high functioning people that have severe mental health issues that we mm-hmm. see a lot in murderers. Like there are high functioning psychopaths all mm-hmm. around us, all around us yeah. that are like fine. And yeah. you don't. I mean, you're not going to be a murderer just because you're. Just because you're a sociopath. There's no correlation there. (laughs) No. It's just that, like, most serial killers are sociopaths. That's the (laughs) correlation. So this interesting thing happens one night, um, and Rule points it out in her book. She says that, like, Ted would always walk her out to her car at night, and he would always make her feel safe, saying, be careful, I don't want anything to happen to you. Ironic, Mm. right? (laughs) Um, But yeah, so this is just like the fluctuation in the behavior for Bundy. It's just sort of like the part that kind of like makes me sad to think that maybe he did have this weird disassociativeness and he was a good person at first, but then his mental disorder triggered something and he became this monster. So it's interesting to think about, again, all of the studies that were done on Bundy and there were several psychological studies that were done were never really conclusive to the fact of who Bundy was and if he actually had a mental disorder. Um, A lot of people like to say that he did, but nobody actually proved it. Or like diagnosed him. Yeah, or diagnosed him, yes. Because he was so normal looking, you know, and he was so, you know, like monsters don't look like Ted Bundy. That's why I I keep jumping to sociopath, particularly with him, Mm -hmm. because it's like you can just fake all of that stuff. Absolutely. And then turn it completely off. And Mm -hmm. it's really scary. But I mean, I think that I can't imagine a scenario in which he doesn't have some sort of severe mental health issue that was unaddressed. Like, I can't. I mean, even though he wasn't technically diagnosed with anything, like, 
I mean, you don't just do that. <laughs> no. If there's nothing, if you're fine. Right. And Not was, that people with mental health issues aren't fine, but you yes, know what I'm saying. Yeah, but he was constantly in denial about it as right. well. Um, he, he always thought he was a normal guy, and obviously not. So... And Bund- the stigma. Yeah, right. And the stigma. <laughs> so Bundy worked for Governor Dan Evans and saw him reelected. Evans liked Bundy as well as everyone else did. And um, he would be instrumental in getting Bundy into the University of Utah Law School in 1974, in addition to Elizabeth's dad. Um, so this is kind of a weird part that doesn't get really talked about a lot, but Bundy was accepted into the University of Law School, uh, the University of Utah Law School in 1974. So he could have started his L1 year, um, like, in, no, he was accepted in 73, sorry. And so he could have started the year before he actually went. Um, but he decided that he was going to concoct this crazy lie and he ended up not going to the university that year stating that he had been in a terrible car accident and had broken one of his legs and he wasn't going to be able to make it make the move down to Utah that year but he wanted them to defer his enrollment and instead he enrolled in the University of Puget Sound Law School so there's that bit. And then during this time, he also started to work for Ross Davis, who is the chairman of the Republican Party, and was being paid a very significant amount of money, more money than he would ever make throughout his life. So that also could have been a factor into why he stayed in Washington. But like, why lie about it? You know, you could just say, I got a really good job. I'm going to go to this law school for a year and make some money and then reapply it for my L2 year. Well, so, maybe it's because he had all that help being accepted, and he was right, and that he, he wanted be to like, accepted. yeah, yeah, he wanted to kind of like gratify why he wasn't going there without it being like a monetary thing. Because again, he was very obsessed with coming off as a very high class society guy, and so saying, "Well, I need to make money before I can move out there," doesn't really doesn't really put you as a high class society person because usually you just have money, I guess. Um, So he lied about that. Really odd. So in 1973, he actually would go to California during the campaign of Governor uh, Dan Evans, and he would do that for like the campaign trail or whatever. And he would meet up with Diane, who was living there at the time. So Diane, again, they had been talking a lot and Bundy had been sort of like pushing the relationship to invite her to date him again sort Mm -hmm. of that's not really a good way to put it but you know what I mean so they went out to dinner um she was really impressed with how he had gotten into law school but how he was going to stay and work for um Ross Davis and all of these things and so they start to date again and he's Um, still dating Elizabeth still involved with Elizabeth she is none the wiser she would not know about this until the police would tell her about it in Utah rude like three years later she even so Diane would like fly out to Seattle quite often. Bundy would start calling her his fiance, and they were completely engaged by the winter of 1973. And Diane was like really excited about this. Like her whole family was really accepting of Bundy. She was so happy for how much he had grown in his life, and she was glad that they had remained friends and like had built up this relationship and that he was starting to work through some of the things that had been issues previously. So everything's going great. 
Everything's cool. They're engaged. They're talking about wedding plans. It was like a full-blown thing. How was he? <laughs> I know. How? This is yeah, he kind even, of impressive. Honestly. I know. He even would like go up to Ross Davis's cabin. Like he Ross Davis let him and um Diane take it for the weekend and they did like a weekend vacation together. By the end of 1973, so come like November, December, Diane would say that Bundy started to like treat her really differently. So he didn't buy her a Christmas present. He said that he had an affair and that the woman had aborted his child. So he just tells her this over dinner one night. Apparently the sex was really bad at this point um, and it had been good before. It was just not good. And so Diane is just like, I'm going home. You need to, I don't know what's going on with you, but I I have to go home. This is just too much. So she would fly back to California in January of 1974, three days before Bundy would attack his first victim, Karen Sparks. Oh. Interesting, isn't it? Well, the timing there (laughs) is is a little profound. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So after a few weeks of Diane being in California, she called Bundy on the advice of a friend and asked about the engagement and why he hadn't been in touch with her and all of these things. And this is what he said to her on the phone. And it is the most cold-hearted, tiny sentence I've ever heard in my life. So she's like begging him to tell her what's going on about their engagement. And he just said to her, Diane, I have no idea what you mean. And then he hung up the phone. (laughs) Isn't that horrible? Wow. I know. And we're going to end part two on that. (laughs) Obviously, Diane is a big catalyst in Bundy's transformation into this horrible monster. So we're going to talk about some of his first attacks coming up soon here. Um, They're pretty intense, but I'm excited to talk about his victims because they were also unique and important. And it's so sad that they lost their lives. But um, yeah. So thanks thanks for for listening. listening.